Welcome to the My Psychology Podcast. Thanks for joining us. My name is Andy Pomerantz, and I'm a psychology professor at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. I also happen to be the author of the My Psychology textbook from Macmillan Learning. In each episode of this podcast, instructors from various colleges and universities join me to talk about the most important and most interesting parts of the chapter to help you understand and appreciate them. As we do, we will share some stories about our own experiences with concepts from the chapter from inside or outside of the classroom. Okay, in this episode of the podcast, we will focus on chapter number six, which is the chapter on learning. And with me, I have two guests, each of which are instructors of the intro psych class who use the My Psychology textbook. Uh, first, we've got Nicole Brandt. Nicole is an assistant professor of psychology at Columbus State Community College in Columbus, Ohio. Hi, Nicole. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. And we also have with us Ava Selly, who is a principal lecturer in the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University. Hi, Ava. Hi there. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely. So here's a quick summary of Chapter 6, Learning. The chapter starts by defining learning as the process by which life experience changes the behavior or thinking of a person and members of other species, for that matter. It then covers classical conditioning, how Ivan Pavlov discovered it, the components of it like unconditioned stimulus and response, neutral stimulus, and conditioned stimulus and response, ideas related to it like generalization and discrimination, acquisition and extinction, higher order conditioning, and vicarious conditioning. The chapter then moves on to the other major type of conditioning, operant conditioning, and all of the research led by the work of B.F. Skinner about the ways that reinforcement and punishment influence our behavior. Then there's a quick section on observational learning or learning by watching what happens to other people, including Albert Bandura's famous Bobo Dow study. And finally, there are sections on the biological and cognitive influences on learning. So, Nicole, let me start with you. What topic would you like to focus on from, from Chapter 6? Sure. The first thing that came to my mind was classical conditioning. My students historically always struggle with this concept, and we spend a lot of time in the classroom after they've read the book to go through example after example after example, going through the neutral stimulus, the unconditioned stimulus, unconditioned response, conditioned response, and, and all of those terms, and making sure they're really solid with understanding that and applying it to examples beyond just Pavlov's experiment, which we also spend a lot of time on. Yeah, in my experience, students do have a hard time understanding those terms and, and applying them, and it sounds like those examples could, could be really helpful. Any examples come to mind right now that you could share at yeah, the moment? Yeah, so I have two kids, and I oftentimes use examples of my kids with my students. I found that they, they enjoy real-life examples. So for classical conditioning, I often use an example of my youngest son. His name's Michael. And Michael had a lot of medical procedures done when he was a baby. And so I use an example of being at the doctor's office where they put on the blue latex gloves. And when Michael first started going to the doctors, those blue gloves meant nothing to him. He didn't get scared at all when they would put on those blue gloves and make that little noise where they kind of snap when they put them on. And he was fine. But after several appointments of getting blood drawn and many, many shots that, that hurt, he began to associate those blue gloves with crying and pain and, and, and so forth and an unpleasant medical procedure. So I always tell my students he was classically conditioned to be afraid of these rather neutral blue gloves. So we kind of go through what would be the neutral stimulus and, and so forth in that situation. So we talk about the blue gloves being the neutral stimulus, the Unconditioned stimulus would be either the, some sort of needle, the shot, the blood work, 
His unconditioned response is him crying in response to that needle. And then after several conditioning trials of that, when he would go to the doctors, as soon as they would put those blue gloves on, he immediately started clinging to me and crying. And it was quite honestly, really sad to see him like that. Um, and then we go through that those blue gloves became the conditioned stimulus and his conditioned response was crying to those blue gloves. And so I also like that example because then we talk about how the last six months or so, my son has not had as many of those experiences. And we talk about the counter conditioning and how he's becoming more and more comfortable with those blue gloves to the point where he just wore them the other week at the doctor's office and wasn't afraid of them. He wore them himself? Yeah, he wore them himself and took them home like a little prize. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I agree with Nicole. This is this is probably one of the most confusing topics for, for students historically, yet if they break it down, it's very manageable. So the, the way we talk about it is don't forget this is all about stimulus response. So if you could just remember it, stimulus response, something happens and then there's a response. And then you've got these terms, unconditioned, conditioned, which confuses students. If you can just remember that conditioned means learned, conditioning means learning. As soon as you realize that, then you're like, oh, okay, there's an unlearned stimulus response and then there's a learned stimulus response. The unlearned one is the one that happens naturally, right? So with the ex example of Pavlov's dog, you know, dogs naturally doesn't have to learn it, will drool to food, you know, will salivate to food. Um, dogs do not salivate to bells. That's weird. All right. That's that would not happen unless the conditioning, the learning process takes place. And so as long as you can remember that that conditioned means learning, then suddenly it's like, oh, stimulus response. And then you can sort of break it down where the unconditioned response and the conditioned response are essentially the same response, except that the conditioned response happens to the conditioned stimulus. It's new because you don't drool in response to a bowel, you drool in response to food. You know, you're not fearful of the blue glove that Nicole mentioned until you learn that connection between those two things. So once we break those things down, I think it helps students a lot. And then exactly like Nicole said is examples, examples, examples. You can't memorize the definitions of these terms and expect to be able to answer test questions where somebody says, Susie's driving down a highway and it's snowing and she has a car accident, you know, then, you know, Susie becomes afraid of driving in the snow. And then you have to identify the elements. You've got to be able to work through the examples in order to to know how to answer those questions on a test. Right, right. So Ava, do you have another topic from chapter six that, you, that you'd like to, to focus on? Sure. When we move to operant conditioning, one of the topics that is vexing, and actually it's, it's two subtopics that are vex, is vexing for students, has to do with, first of all, the difference between reinforcement and punishment, and then also what is, what's this positive-negative thing? You know, you hear this, you know, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, and then how are these different? So these are two sort of related subtopics that lead us to that sort of classic question that we ask students, which is, what's the difference between punishment and negative reinforcement and, and the confusion that almost inevitably sets in as far as that's concerned? And so 
emphasizing this, making sure that students, when they review this material, understand that reinforcement, by definition, is always about increasing responses, increasing behaviors, whereas punishment is always about decreasing responses, decreasing behaviors. As long as you can remember that, you're way ahead in terms of understanding the distinctions between these processes. And then positive and negative, what you've got to remember is that all that means it's either adding or subtracting. So it, it has nothing to do with whether something's good or bad or liked or disliked or whatever. It has to do with whether something's being added or taken away. So that positive reinforcement is something that increases responses because we've added something, presumably something that somebody enjoys. You know, we give somebody, you know, money as pay to go to work. That's essentially a form of positive reinforcement. Negative reinforcement is about getting people to do something by taking away something that is aversive to them. So for example, taking a an aspirin when you have a headache, it you know helps make the headache go away and that essentially reinforces taking an aspirin or a Tylenol or whatever you take for a headache. Punishment is going to decrease responses. So anything that, you know, the, the, the phrase positive punishment and negative punishment, that always sounds very awkward to students uh, and to us, us to tell you the truth, but it's it just sort of means the same thing as positive punishment when we, you know, say to you, well, you know, because you did this, you've got extra chores. So for example, I've got a preteen when she misbehaves, there are two forms of punishment I can use. I can either tell her she's got extra chores to do, which is positive punishment, or I could take away some of her privileges, which is negative punishment. So understanding the difference between reinforcement and punishment and understanding the difference between positive and negative then gives you, you know, pretty keen understanding of all the possible combinations. Yeah, that, that is a great discussion. Let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll hear more from Ava Selly of Arizona State University and Nicole Brandt from Columbus State Community College about Chapter 6, Learning. The My Psychology Podcast is brought to you by Launchpad from Macmillan Learning. When I wrote My Psychology, I wanted students to maximize their connection to the science of psychology, and Launchpad does just that. It's the one place where you can find the full ebook of My Psychology, features like My Take videos, chapter apps, and show me more links, and Macmillan's full library of resources, including videos, flashcards, concept practice activities, and more. Best of all, Launchpad includes the Learning Curve Adaptive Quizzing System designed based on cognitive research to improve your learning and help you retain information over time. In addition, the Learning Curve algorithm chooses questions based on your performance, delivering a quiz that is unique to you. If you aren't using Launchpad already, you can sign up for a free trial right now. That's right, you can get 21 days of free access right now by visiting launchpadworks.com and searching for my psychology that's launchpadworks.com sign up now for your 21 days of free access and start studying with the learning curve adaptive quizzing system Welcome back. Again, I'm Andy Pomerantz, and I'm the author of the My Psychology textbook, and I teach psychology at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Joining me today to talk about Chapter 6, the learning chapter, are Ava Selly from Arizona State University and Nicole Brandt from Columbus State Community College in Columbus, Ohio. 
so Nicole, back to you. An- another topic that you had in mind uh, regarding this chapter. Sure. So the the next thing I was really thinking about is observational learning, and we go through Bandora's Bobo doll study and how we learn by observing other people, by imitation and modeling. And we talk a lot that we not only learn by watching what people do, but also what people don't do in certain situations. And and then we'll talk about real life examples and so forth. I found that, that it's really important to discuss that in class. Yeah, we talk about speeding. <laughs> we talk about what happens when you're on the 101 here near us in Tempe and you're speeding and you see somebody pulled over by the side of the road. And the fact that you take your foot off the gas gradually and kind of slow down because you have noticed that someone else essentially is being punished. So you take this observational vicarious learning and suddenly all those operant principles apply to you even when it's not happening directly to you. So that you're learning something. You've learned something that if you keep speeding, you're going to get punished and somebody else is being punished. So you are going to drop back down. And conversely, if everyone's speeding and there are no police and people are speeding right past you, what are you going to do? You're going to increase your speed because you realize, hey, there is no punishment. And the absence of punishment is, interestingly enough, a reinforcing effect. Great examples. I'm, I'm sure students can relate to those really well. You know, there's another ch- another topic in chapter six that I wanted to uh, I wanted to bring up myself, and that was the the, the topic of, of the different schedules of reinforcement. I know there are multiple concepts that sort of intersect here. There's fixed versus variable reinforcement schedules, and there's also um, interval versus ratio schedules as well. To me, it's that first distinction, whether it's fixed or variable, that I think is most meaningful in, in students' lives. And that's the, that's the distinction that I hope that they can um, learn and, and understand the most. Um, just how the same, the same reinforcement, the same amount of it, the same number of occurrences, whether it happens in a fixed predictable way or an unpredictable variable way, can make a huge difference on how they um, behave, how any of us behave. In the book, there's a description. It's in the the watching psychology box about uh, about watching baseball yeah. games on TV and how, you know, the the, the things that happen in a, in a baseball game, like like home runs, or really things that happen in any sporting event. If you know they happen, they happen at a certain rate. And sometimes statistics can tell you how often a particular player does this or a particular team does this does that. But but it's variable. You never know if if two of those things or three of those things might happen right in a row, or if you may, might have to wait a very, very long time to see the next one. So that keeps you watching. And if it was predictable, if you knew exactly when the next one was coming, your your viewing patterns would be very different. And in, in addition to that, I like to talk to students about social media and how, you know, how, how social media is just operates on such a variable schedule. But if they got the same amount of of reinforcement from social media, but it was only available at certain times. It was only available once an hour or you know, twice a day or something along those lines. They would only check social media at those times. But because at any moment, some new, something new and reinforcing might appear on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat or any, any other social media that, is, that a student uses, it's something that we check over and over and over again, rather than any waiting for any sort of fixed interval to go by and and, and check it check it at, at only at that point. 
how about how about the two of you? How about your your experiences teaching the the fixed versus variable schedule concept? Yeah, this is a huge one. And I mean, we talk first of all, we sort of create the grid, you know, fixed versus variable, ratio versus interval. And I try to try to make those concrete. Fixed versus variable just sounds so abstract. It's really is do you know it's coming? You know, is it predictable, like you said? And then ratio and interval just means behaviors or responses versus time. We actually talk about video games and I let the students generate the examples. I use this actually, now that I'm teaching primarily online, I use this as a discussion board and these discussions sort of take off because video game designers are experts, experts in these schedules of reinforcement. They use all of them. And I ask students to think about their favorite video game and think about which aspect of the game has which type of intermittent or partial reinforcement schedule. And so, you know, you get you get certain perks for logging in every single day, right? So, and that's predictable. So there's there's a fixed interval schedule. If you catch X number of something, you know, you get a certain reward. Again, that's a fixed ratio schedule. But the thing that really hooks you into video games is those, all those variable ratio and variable interval schedules where there are things that pop up, you know, but you don't really know when both in terms of how much time has passed or in terms of how many things you've defeated or caught or whatever whatever your video game is. And I, I speak in very general terms and then I ask students to come up with the examples because I'm not that hip as far as knowing what the latest craze is in video games. You know, I used to use examples like Pokemon Go. Now students think that's kind of uh, dorky at this point. So I just let them generate their own examples and they're they get into video games I'm not even familiar with but they can see it they can see these reinforcement schedules and then we I asked them to you know explain it and then we sort of correct it. it was like well is that really based on time is it an interval schedule or is it based on responses a ratio schedule and that that usually drives the, the point home pretty clearly yeah especially if you can if you can ask them to imagine some of those schedules of reinforcements in the video games in, in their opposite form. Like in other words, if the video game creators had taken something that was a fixed schedule of reinforcement and made it variable or something that was a variable schedule of reinforcement and made it fixed, how would that affect your experience playing the game? I mean, it's just so clear. Most games, you can see many if not all of these reinforcement schedules embedded in different aspects of gameplay. Absolutely. It's, 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 uh, it's sort of, it's understandable that people would get hooked. Uh, that's great. So as, as we come close to the end of our time for this particular episode, I'll ask each of you if there's, if there are any last points that you wanted to make about, uh, about this learning chapter, chapter six, Nicole, we'll start with you. Any, any last quick points about chapter six? Sure. I think that, you know, as we said earlier, examples are so important. I encourage my students when they're studying Make sure they're solid with Pavlov's experiment because that's definitely a starting point. But I encourage them to come up with their own examples, practice labeling things, and then check with me. You know, it, they might think that they're doing it right at home, but obviously sometimes they're not. And so I really encourage that repetition. And if you can apply it to many, many examples, then they're going to be solid, especially if they can link it back to things happening in their own life. So those are my couple of tips. Well, those are great. Th thanks for sharing them. Ava, how about you? 
Yeah, kind of along the lines of what Nicole's saying, I really talk about that. I love this chapter. So it's just really, just as Nicole said, practice with those examples and making sure that they're identifying the elements correctly. But the neat thing about this stuff is that this is, this is life stuff. This is, you see this everywhere. I defy students to go out into the real world and not find 20 examples of classical or operant conditioning, you know, within an hour after leaving class. I mean, it's just, it's really cool stuff. And to be able to understand the world, you just don't understand the contingency underlying it. You're missing something, you know. People will bring up really powerful examples like domestic violence, for example. You know, we've had long discussions about like, well, well, in terms of punishment, that's that should be fairly clear, right? And it's like, well, no, because there's something reinforcing you're missing. You're missing the stimulus response connection for that person. And the example that I give, which is a much lighter example, is, you know, if I give you a chocolate bar as a reinforcer, but you don't like chocolate bars, that chocolate bar will not be reinforcing for you. So that's a really important element to to sort of figure out. And I think there are really sort of interesting life skills that you that you gain when you learn about all these different types of learning that we do and how it changes our behaviors in everyday life. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really interesting and in how, how students can begin to, to appreciate how many different contingencies are in play at any particular moment. The textbook and we as instructors, we can simplify it and try to make it seem like there's only you know, there's only a punishment or a reinforcement after a particular behavior. But the truth is, at least in many situations, there are so many different reinforcements and punishments and so many other potential reinforcements and punishments that the person can imagine. That the example you just brought up, Ava, about about a person in an abusive relationship who who is obviously experiencing some some punitive consequences from staying in the relationship, maybe there is something reinforcing, or maybe there's something even more punitive about the other options. That's it would be even more a greater punishment or possibly a greater punishment if they did try to leave the relationship or address the uh, the abuse or something along those lines. So yeah, it's it's it can get complicated into and and I think for an introductory psychology course, it's it would be too much to require students to to fully appreciate all the permutations, but to get them to even begin to appreciate that, I think is pretty pretty cool. And and also, as you mentioned, they they know this stuff. They they don't know the terminology, but they know these these phenomena, these these concepts before they ever walk into our classroom. Okay, so to both Ava Selly and Nicole Brand, thank you very much for joining us today. And thanks to all of you for listening. We hope this podcast helps you learn and appreciate the material in this chapter. Of course, you should check with your own instructor to see what's most important in your own class. And for more resources for studying this chapter, check out Launchpad at launchpadworks.com. Talk to you again soon.